Welcome to the Tinnily Talks podcast, where we dive into the common legal issues facing today's community associations. Whether you're a manager, board member, or homeowner, you're sure to pick up on some nuggets of advice to help you build a successful community in this ever-evolving and changing world. Hello and welcome to Tinley Talks. I'm Ramona Acosta. And I'm Steve Tinley. And today we're going to answer your most frequently asked questions about assessment collection with um, our in-house attorney, Corey Todd. Corey's an attorney with Tinley Law Group in our Mission Viejo headquarters. He's one of the supervising attorneys for our assessment collection division, Altera Assessment Recovery. And we thought he would be the perfect person to come and sit down with us today to talk about all of the questions and all of the things that you have been wondering about collecting association dues. Thank you so much, Corey, for joining us today. Absolutely. Very happy to be here. Uh, I always love getting all these types of questions and being able to really advise boards and management companies alike so that we can make sure we are taking the best approach for your individual needs. You know, we did um, an episode on assessment collections about a year ago, but collections is one of those um, fields that I feel like it's constantly changing. The law is just constantly changing with regard to assessment collection. And we're not just talking about state law and the Davis-Sterling Act, but even federally and the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. I feel like it's a moving target. We are constantly seeing changes as we go through the process. We get different explanations from the governing bodies. We see the Davis-Sterling Act changing. So it's always really good that we make these you know, updates as we go so we can make sure everyone knows the status and what we're dealing with on a regular basis. Right. And so just because what was the case maybe a year ago or two years ago, there may have been a court case. There may have been a change in the law. There may have been something that came up that makes it so that we have to change our processes and procedures. Absolutely. All right. Well, to that um, end, we've had quite a few questions come up recently. Um, many of those have been a result of change as a result of recent court cases. Um, the first one is when Altera gets a file, sometimes when we receive it, um, the management company does the um, late notices and the pre-liens, and then we get it in time to file the lien. Other times when we get a file, someone else has already prepared the lien, whether that be a management company or a prior collection firm, and sometimes we are then required to file a new lien. Why would that be? So the beginning stages of the non-judicial foreclosure process are very important. In 2013, there was the case Diamond v. Superior Court, wherein the court held essentially that HOAs must strictly comply with all of the statutory requirements for non-judicial foreclosure and for the notices associated with those. So when Altera receives a new file, we take the time to essentially give it a full scrub. We'll look at all the accounting, all the notice requirements to ensure that everything has been properly done. If we see any any errors that were made or notices not included, time frames that weren't abided by, we need to make sure that we are taking the appropriate action, which may be releasing the lien, recording a new lien, or sending out new notices. Because if we don't ensure that everything has been strictly followed, we can get all the way down to the foreclosure sale. It can lead to a challenge by the homeowner and basically unwind the full process. So it costs you know up to thousands of dollars in, in association funds and time that you can't get back. So doing this at an early stage prevents us from having to go through that correct work later and ensures we're starting off on the right foot. So we understand that at times associations may not like to hear that, but we're doing it as a benefit to the association as a whole and want to ensure that we're starting off on the right foot. Yeah. Um, Just on that, I mean, when we were building Altera, 
we were in an interesting position because before we were doing collection work, we got to see what all these other collection firms and collection companies were doing. A lot of times clients would run into frustration because a file would be worked by their service provider. And as you said, it would get to the tail end of the process and they would realize, oh my gosh, there was a defect in the preliminary stages that requires us basically to start over or even worse. Now we're having a homeowner with an attorney challenging things or even worse. Let's say you actually foreclose on a home and now it's a bad foreclosure. So how to avoid all of those steps is paramount. So in the very beginning, when Altera gets a file, we do that audit. We do that underwriting to make sure every T has been crossed, so to speak, and every I has been dotted. And that's because the, the case that you brought up, for the non-attorneys listening, strict compliance is the highest standard. We have to perform every single thing. It's not such that, let's say, oh, this has to go to the homeowner for 30 days. Well, we only had 29 days that we gave it to the homeowner, but the homeowner already knew about it, right? So it was good enough. That's what's called substantial compliance, right? And in that Diamond case, the court said, no, substantial compliance is not enough. It's got to be perfect. So when there are things in the pre-lien or the lien, for example, where the homeowner's names are wrong, or not everybody who is actually on title was given copies of the documents, or the accounting was wrong, or oftentimes we'll get a pre-lien that doesn't include an itemized statement of the debt that's required under the code. If we were to take all that and we have this, what we call defective work, and if we were to then proceed on trying to enforce a defective lien, that's massive liability exposure for us. It's massive liability exposure for the client. Anytime we take a collection action where we're there's some information wrong, what we're doing then is we're misrepresenting the nature of the debt, right? We're misrepresenting the rights that the creditor can take. Those are all federal violations. Those are FDCPA violations. So it's it might seem that sometimes, well, this is frustrating. Well, I don't understand. It's it's a small issue. Well, actually, it is a it is a really it's big issue. Yeah, and we're doing it not from the and and it's kind of one of those difficult things because the last thing we want to do, especially when we partner with a new community or a new management company to help out one of their clients, the last thing we want to do is say, hey, by the way, we have to start kind of at, at square one again. But we do that because it keeps everybody out of court. Um, and the reason why Altera has not been sued. Uh, is because we do not we do not take um, you know that information lightly. We do not play fast and loose with this stuff. In the area of debt collection, it's all got to be perfect. So sometimes you might have to record a, a new lien or do a new pre-lien, and it's not because we want to make people's lives tougher than they need to be. It's because we're trying to keep everybody from uh, getting hit with massive liability exposure, FDCPA violations. It's just um, just the right way to do it. Right. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but in addition to Diamond saying. Um, not only do you have to completely start the file all over from the very beginning, but all of those collection costs, attorney's fees, and so forth, none of that is recoverable at this point, right? Yeah. So anything for the defective work, the association has paid out and is not getting any of that back. Correct, yeah, and that's by statute. That's Civil Code Section 5685. That's by statute. As soon as we identify that there was the errors are recorded in error, we have to release that lien and then credit back those fees. So, so we're talking a couple hundred dollars to to record to record re-record a defective lien versus what could be thousands of dollars because we waited until we got all the way down to the end of the line and realized, oops, we made a mistake with the original pre-lien or the original lien. Correct. Yeah, and what we also like to do, especially when partnering with new management companies or new associations, is take the time you know at this outset when we're getting the first couple files. To then provide education, you know, what needs to be done for those new pre-lien letters moving forward, if they're recording the lien before sending it over, to make sure those, you know, those are set properly. So it's not, you know, we're going to do this every time. It's 
all the new files from then on out, they're being complied with so that it's just a, a good uh, relationship builder and we're all moving forward on the same page. Well, and, and on that note, um, I know that Altera has even gone the extra step to um, work with some management companies, those that we have a lot of collection files with where we've taken the time to review templates and just kind of make sure that, okay, if we're going to take it from, you know, the lean stage, then let's go ahead and take a look at your pre-leans and make yeah. sure that by the time we get it, we know it's good to go. Yeah, I've had to have those awkward conversations. See, what are you talking about? We've been doing our pre-leans and our leans this way for forever. Well, you know, the law has changed and this is a thing. But we, you know, we have the same client. And this one I'm speaking to a management company executive. We both want to perform for our mutual client. We both want to look good for our mutual client. So... We have to fix this issue, but what can we do to help you so that we don't run into this issue again? You know, if you're a management company, if you're going to be doing the pre-leans and leans, well, let's make sure what you're going to do moving forward complies with this so that we never have to kick the work back again. Um, and we've been blessed. Everybody's been very receptive to that, and it's been we've been able to go, you know, smooth sailing uh, for those companies. So it's, you know, the goal is to, oh, we've working with a new company. The first file came over. There's some de- uh, d- defective work that we need to correct. What can we do now to prevent this from ever happening again in any future files with this company? Um, and it's worked well. It's yeah, worked that's well. most beneficial for everyone involved. Nice. Um, so moving forward with liens, um, another new case that came down within the uh, last few years had to deal with non-continuing liens. So way back in the day, um, we could file a lien against a property for delinquent assessments, and that lien would then capture all new assessments that became delinquent while that lien was attached to the property. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, once the debt reached the $1,800 of assessments, then we could proceed with the foreclosure process. That's no longer the case. To my understanding, now we have to file new liens. Every time there is an additional assessment that is delinquent, it doesn't attach to that original lien. There has to be a new lien to cover that new delinquency. Correct, yeah. So this has been a really hot ticket item. I I, I have dealt with this numerous times over the last three years. So in August of 2019, the uh, U.S. Bankruptcy Appellate Panel ruled that in the case of Highland Greens versus DeGuillen, effectively in Ray DeGuillen, that the association is no longer to record continuing assessment liens. So let's say, for example, we had a lien that was recorded in January. Normally, we would have that lien that was recorded capture everything else, like you mentioned, that accrued all the way. Let's say it's October. Everything from January till October has been incorporated back into that lien. But in this in uh, DeGuillen case, the bankruptcy appellate panel basically said that is actually not what is provided for under the Dave Sterling Act. It basically went against what the Bear Creek case said, which allowed the continuing assessment liens, and said that, no, instead you need to record successive assessment liens. So we have one recorded in January. You know, it's, it's been a couple of months now. Assessment balance is increasing, and the association wants to secure those debts. Instead of having it all under that first lien, we have to record another lien to capture those amounts that have accrued from January to October. Um, so this also, we have to follow all the notice requirements that we did for the original lien, and it just provides a, a greater burden on associations, management companies, and collection firms to make sure more and more notice is given to the homeowners. And the court in that actually even went into detail saying, we understand that this may be uh, you know, financial burden on the association and in turn on the homeowners, but that's not for the courts to decide, that's up for the legislature to decide. So until we see you know, additional changes from the legislature to either allow or disallow continuing links, we are stuck in the situation where we have to record 
successive assessment links. And we do so uh, kind of more on a case-by-case basis. If it's a low assessment association versus high, we may recommend different timeframes for recording those. Uh, so if you have questions on that, we're always happy to perform a review and then to give guidance before you know taking any further action. Yeah, it's been a uh, it's been a frustrating thing, and a lot of conversations. You know, you start telling board members or management companies this, and they kind of look at you sideways. Well, it doesn't make any sense. Are you saying that the lien that we recorded last year only secured the debt owed up until the time that the lien was recorded, and it didn't carry everything forward? That that's not how we've done it in our industry for forever. And we said, well. Yeah, we understand that, but we have to make this change because of this Enray de Egan case where the court looked at the existing law, the existing Davis-Sterling Act, and said there's nothing that allows for a continuing lien. The only way we can read the language is that when you're enforcing the lien, that lien secures the debt owed at the time that the lien was recorded and nothing thereafter. So for us to continue to you know treat these things as continuing liens, what are we doing again? We are misrepresenting the nature of the debt. If we were to foreclose on a continuing lien with those balance, that would be um, you know, misrepresentation of the creditor's rights. These are all FDCPA violations, which are federal violations, and this was a federal case, right? So in a situation where an association would be sued or we would be sued based on FDCPA violations, the court would look to this and say, well, why were you doing this continuing lien thing? And the court said that you aren't supposed to be able to do that. So that's exposure there. Um, so yeah, that... The court in that case basically said it's not for us to decide. The legislature in California needs to change the Davis-Sterling Act to allow what you guys think that they should allow. And until that happens, this is what the law is. So then taking that even further, then we get the question, okay, so we're just going to record multiple liens against the same homeowner? Well, maybe. I mean, it's not usually the case that we have to record two or three or four liens on the homeowner because usually when they're in collections, right, when the debt's being collected, we have to be very careful to say this is the secured debt, right? This is the debt that's owed, that's secured by the lien that we're collecting on. And now this is the unsecured debt, the stuff that you owe after the lien, right? So we make a demand for all of that, but we have to be very careful not to say we're foreclosing on the whole thing because that's a, that's a problem. So exactly. yeah, it hasn't been, I don't think it's been, you know, as, as burdensome as it sounds for management companies and for associations, it's been incredibly burdensome for us because we have to, we've had to change our entire systems, our workflows to do this. And we know it's, you know, it's more financial outlay for the community, which is why we've tamped our fees down significantly. We wish the continuing lien thing uh, was enacted because it would just make the process a ton easier. So until that happens, and I don't know, Ramona, if if Clack or anybody is wanting to take this up, but I think this would be a good bill um, uh, to sponsor. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Clack, Clack has been talking about it the last couple of years. There have been bigger issues afoot um, that have kind of put it on the back burner, but mm-hmm. it is something that we're all looking to because, you know, again, the the – outcome, the, the court's reasoning in DeGian doesn't make sense when you're looking at Davis Sterling and you're looking at, well, how do we get to $1,800 delinquent if the lien doesn't continue? If you can't keep attaching the assessments, then how do you get to the $1,800? So it, it, they don't make sense. That was going to be my follow-up question to you because, as you said, Corey, this DeGian case kind of wiped out Bear Creek. Bear Creek was a California um, appellate case. The Deguian case is a federal case. Are you seeing more lawsuits in in the collect in the realm of the overall realm of collections? Are you seeing more cases being FDCPA federal cases versus being violations of Davis Sterling? Are you, are you seeing that that's where the filings are happening? Um, well, not for I mean I haven't seen anything in terms of our I, all I know is that we're not seeing really any because we're not getting claims filed against us. No, <laughs> but just, <laughs> but, yeah. exactly. Um, 
but yeah. But I mean, in terms of the case law, though, I feel like I feel like more I feel like more homeowners are becoming more astute, yeah. and they're filing FDCPA claims versus filing a lawsuit in California court. Yeah, it's not even necessarily the homeowners. It's you know our industry. It's a big industry, but it's under the radar in a lot of respects. But now you know it's I think it's its visibility has increased such that plaintiffs' attorneys are now aware of this. I mean, there's been class action claims filed against collection companies, HOA collection companies in Northern California. And in Southern California, and if I'm in a plaintiff's, uh, plaintiff's attorney, what am I going uh, to do? I'm going to make, you know, file a claim based on every single violation of everything. It's not even going to be California statute. It's going to be federal statute um, as well. So that's, you know, and seeing these things and how people are getting hit in these class actions, these classes are being certified on the basis of FDCPA violations. It is a... It is a concern. It's not just California. We look federally, uh, federally as well. Yeah, and I just I wanted to bring up that point just because you know when I was managing and and with many of the managers that I speak to, we tend to think about Davis Sterling. You know, our world is the Davis Sterling Act. Our world is California law, FDCPA, and federal law is kind of out there in the ether somewhere. Um, but I feel like in the in collections, we're starting to touch that federal law more frequently, and it's becoming more of a reality that we have to start paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I have started seeing more recently, maybe within the last year or so, uh, is as we have adopted and changed our procedures, given the, the new changes in the law, um, and we have the additional disclosures and, and things like that, is homeowners are actually, you know, stating that, you know, the Fair Debt Collection Practice Act obligation for debt validation notices, things of that nature. So it does seem, you know, kind of to Steve's point, uh, you know, there is more visibility so they're aware that they can request these things. So if we aren't complying and providing these notices, then that can be another violation. So that just goes to show that the benefit of actually following these uh, provides, you know, that safe haven and protects the association from unnecessary exposure. Yeah, I mean, even preventing a claim being filed, if you think about it, all these different things, and there's some things like debt validation notices, we use a specific form. By us covering all these bases, what does it do? Is it forecloses the ability for the homeowner, pardon the pun, to um, throw a wrench in the works? I mean, even if technically we're not violating anything, if we're not covering all these bases and having everything there such that the homeowner can say, well, I at least can throw a wrench in the works here and delay this thing another six months to a year, right, while they're responding to these things and figuring these things out, right? That is something that we like to avoid as well, even though there might not be a lawsuit or a claim. How can we make sure that we can process and collect this debt as quickly as we possibly can for the least amount of money as we possibly can? Well, by making sure we're doing everything uh, to inhibit the homeowner from trying to say, well, what about this? Well, what about that? What? And then we have to explain, well, that technically doesn't apply. And we did. That. That's why we just cover absolutely everything that we possibly can. Um, and it just, it, honestly, it just presents a better front. When you see all the documentation, you see the debt validation notices, everything that are there, it lets the homeowner know right away, while well, these people have their stuff together. They know what they're doing, and usually homeowners aren't paying their HOA assessment debt because they don't think the HOA has their stuff together, and they don't think the HOA knows what they're doing. So when we're able to combat that narrative, we find that it's very effective in making the homeowner realize, okay, i got to take care of this here because this can get out of control pretty quickly. Exactly. And then after that, we receive the request to, to enter in some kind of payment plan or lump sum payment, and then the matter is resolved. So that's yeah. always, you know, achieves a good yeah, result. Absolutely. Get money in the door for the client. Today's episode is brought to you by Altera Assessment Recovery. Altera provides comprehensive attorney-supervised assessment collection services to community associations throughout California. Trust us with your collection needs. We'll get the job done, done right, and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Altera Assessment Recovery. 
We're the collection team you've been looking for. So, Steve, you mentioned earlier secure debt versus unsecured debt. I want to take that a little bit further. We have a lot of um, managers and, and board members who are choosing not to file the lien or even turn it over to collections until it hits that $1,800 mark. So let's talk about the difference between the lien and the foreclosure. Why do we need to file the lien and why do we need to file it early? Okay. The lien is, is especially in a stronger real estate market like we are in and we've been in for a while, the lien is super valuable in that it secures the debt. And by securing the debt, it is recorded against the property. It clouds title to the property. So the homeowner cannot sell the property. The homeowner cannot refinance the property because the lender is going to want clean title. In order to do that, you know, they have to pay off the lien and have the lien released. So securing that debt through a lien, recording that cloud on title... That's, that's the most important thing to do. Um, during the COVID pandemic, everybody was concerned, oh, we're, whew, this is going to be like another 2008 and we're going to be, you know, a bunch of people aren't going to be paying and it's going to be very difficult to let, uh, collect. We actually found out that it was pretty, it was about the same, maybe even potentially a little bit easier to collect. And it was a nice surprise to see because during the COVID pandemic and with the real estate market, people were moving or people were stuck at home. They said, well, now it's time to remodel this kitchen or whatever. So let's take out a home equity line of credit. And they couldn't do any of those things because the lien was on the property. So we saw a ton of liens uh, being paid off during that during that process. So having that recorded encumbrance is, is super important. Deciding how you then enforce it, that's a different issue, right? So with homeowners not paying, we send the late notices, they're still not paying. We send the pre-lien, they're still not paying. We record the lien, that's debt secured. What happens then if they, okay, well, the lien's on the property, but they're still not paying. What do we do? Well, we have options to enforce the lien, right? We can do that through non-judicial foreclosure, or we can do that through judicial foreclosure. Alterit is both, but we like non-judicial foreclosure, especially in this market. It's just cheaper and more effective in our experience. Um, when, do, when can we start that process? When can we start the start the foreclosure process, the very beginning of the roughly six-month time frame it takes to actually, if we were to go to sale and sell property? Um, we can only do that when the debt, the assessment debt, that's secured by the lien is $1,800 or a one-year delinquent. So if you're a community that has you know very small assessments, well, Steve, to get to $1,800, that's you know, two-plus years of assessment. Well, okay, no, you can wait until a year. So even if... You know, it's only $1,000 in assessments, but it's been a year, we can start the foreclosure process. Some communities we work with, especially, you know, uh, high-end condominium developments, their assessments are as much as, what, 800, 800 bucks or 1000 bucks yeah, a month. So, bucks. A, mm-hmm. you, know, so, you know, a two-month or a three-month assessment debt, you can start that process. But the reason why it's important to even start the foreclosure process, when people say, okay, well, this is going to be a thing, and... We don't know. I mean, is it ultimately going to go to sale? And I'm sure we'll cover this more in the podcast, but it's very, very rare that we get to the point where we're even scheduling a sale date, let alone proceeding with the foreclosure sale. When I say very rare, I mean less than one-tenth of one percent of the files. But when you start the foreclosure process, when the board votes under the Davis-Sterling Act, it's a process to initiate foreclosure. Notice of that decision gets served on the homeowner by a processor or someone knocking at the door, right? And then we record the NOD. In our experience, we find out notice of default, right? So that notice of default starts the foreclosure process. So this big picture, when someone says, okay, we're going to foreclose on the home, it's not, okay, the board voted to foreclose and next week we're going to conduct a sale. No, the initiating the foreclosure process starts the ball rolling and then there's a procedural requirements that we have to satisfy and the quickest it can move realistically is about six months. 
But starting that process and serving the homeowner with notice that the board has decided to start the process, we've recorded a notice of default against the property, just like the lien would be recorded. Uh, in our experience, that's 90% of the files get resolved at that point in time because the homeowner is getting served by a process server, and again, it's the same thing. Oh, my gosh, this is serious business. I need to take care of it. So clients that are reluctant to foreclose, hey, Steve, Corey, we never actually want to sell a home. We never want to totally foreclose on a home. Okay, that's fine. I totally get it. But start the foreclosure process because that threat and the homeowner getting served with those documents, that's what brings the homeowner to the table to either pay it off or get into a payment plan. Uh, so that's why it's important. Yeah, that actually answered one of my questions because we have a lot of um, boards that say, well, you know, we don't want to foreclose. So, so what are the other options? And, and there are other options. And there's judicial foreclosure. There's, you know, suing for a money judgment. But just because we're starting that process doesn't mean that we're going to become owners of property. There are many, many steps between the $1,800 and filing that notice of default before we even get to the courthouse steps. Correct. And 99.9% of the time, we're going to get money before we ever get there. Definitely. Definitely. So going back to the lien, again, we have a, a lot of managers that we work with, a lot of our members that we work with that are waiting until that $1,800 or that one year to even file the lien. They can file the lien under their CCNRs, usually somewhere between 45 to 90 days, depending on whatever those those particular CCNRs say. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that can happen between... 90 days and one year, right? I mean, there's, like you said, you know, they might want to refi, they might want to sell, they might file for bankruptcy. If we're securing the debt with the lien, the association becomes a secured creditor. What does that mean? So if the association is a secured creditor when we're in the realm of bankruptcy, it provides us with a higher uh, priority in actually getting paid through the bankruptcy proceedings. So if we are dealing with someone who files, let's say, a Chapter 13 bankruptcy and they actually have funds that are going to be paid out, then you know, during the course of the plan, you know, the trustee will make dispersing payments and that will go towards the secured lien. Um, that's a higher priority than others that have a lower priority or are unsecured. So just because the homeowner files bankruptcy, if we have a lien on the property, that doesn't mean we're not going to get anything. We don't have to write it off. Correct. And also, if we're dealing with a Chapter 7, so these are essentially where we're dealing with homeowners that don't have much funds. It may be a no-asset case. So a lot of times, uh, associations will see that, like you mentioned, will think they need to write it off. But if there is a lien recorded on the property that satisfies you know, either this $1,800 delinquent in the payment of assessments or is one year, even after if they obtain a discharge, we still have the authority because the lien is on the property to still foreclose on the property. So we'd still have an avenue after the bankruptcy is discharged to still pursue and collect the debt via the foreclosure sale, not against them personally because that amount's been discharged, but against the property. So that's still, we really want to recommend that associations are recording these leads to ensure that that debt is secured so the association really has all the avenues, whether it's bankruptcy, whether it's actually getting through foreclosure, just to have that as an option is very, very important. So, yeah. so if you're a board um, of a small community and you don't have a ton of delinquencies, but you have one or two homeowners that are just the troublesome ones that never pay the assessments, if they do nothing else, if you do nothing else when it comes to collections, at least file the lien. Absolutely. At least get that lien recorded on the property. As Steve has mentioned uh, a couple of times, I think you did too, Ramona, if they're trying to you know, later sell the property, if they're trying to refinance, get that kitchen remodeled through you know, the HELOC or whatever the case may be, 
we can get paid through that. So get that lien recorded, secure the debts. It doesn't have to be written off right away. Uh, and it at least gives you the opportunity to yeah. collect. Yeah, or yeah, or in a case of bankruptcy. So you're just unpacking that a bit further. When a homeowner files bankruptcy, and let's say, okay, now the bankruptcy court looks at a plan, everybody, everybody who is a creditor, right, everybody who is owed money by this homeowner, right, is a creditor. And those creditors, in terms of getting paid off, they're prioritized based upon who is a secured creditor and who is an unsecured creditor. An unsecured creditor would be someone like, oh, I owe, you know, two grand a visa, right? That is an unsecured creditor, whereas a secured creditor would be someone like your mortgage lender who has a mortgage note against your property that's recorded or the association that has a recorded assessment lien. Secured creditors get paid first before the unsecured creditors. So that's why we want to make sure that we do that. And the other thing that you said, Corey, and I think a lot of people don't realize this, when bankruptcy is filed, oh, the debt was discharged in bankruptcy. What does that mean? The bankruptcy court said, okay, homeowner, you are not personally obligated to pay the $5,000 in assessment debt that's secured by the lien. You are discharged from having to pay that personally. So that debt, right, was discharged in bankruptcy. It dies. But the lien does not get discharged. The lien survives the bankruptcy action. We are, once a bankruptcy is done, we're still able to enforce that lien on the homeowner. So we basically tell the homeowner this. Yeah, you're not personally obligated for their bankruptcy court to pay the amount, but we're still going to enforce our lien and we're still going to go after the property. So we don't care if it's you, homeowner, a relative, a business partner, somebody's got to pay us. Otherwise, we're going to proceed with foreclosure. So that's another added benefit I think a lot of people don't realize is that liens survive bankruptcy. They don't get discharged. Only debt gets discharged. I think that may be the number one question I received in relation to bankruptcy is what happens after. And that is, again, always a recommendation. If we have that lien secured or have that lien recorded, we can still proceed. So that's really important. Yeah, I, th- I think you know most of the people that I speak with, I think that the big assumption is that, oh, they filed bankruptcy, so that's it. We're not going to get anything. And that's no. just not the case. Not not the case, too. And this the whole thing about proceeding against the property, and that's what we're talking about. We're enforcing the lien. That's another reason why, you know, as a law firm, it kind of sounds crazy where we don't like using the court system to sue homeowners for assessment debt. Because when, when someone is delinquent, when assessments get levied, right, it is the debt of the owner at the time the assessment was levied, right? So when you're suing a homeowner and you're suing for a money judgment, sometimes these homeowners are a little savvy and sophisticated. What they try to do in order to gum up the works is they say, well, this year I was on title with my my cousin and then I quit claimed a portion of it to my aunt and then I did all these things. So from a lawsuit standpoint, you're having to put together, okay, well, Joe and Mary owed the January through March assessment, but then it was Joe, Mary, and John that owed the whole thing. So you have to you know, analyze all these people. When you get out of the court system and you, instead of suing people, you actually proceed against the property. We are foreclosing on the lien that's on the property. We don't care when Joe, Mary, or John were on title. It's the same thing. Somebody's got to pay us, otherwise we're going to take the property, right? So that's that's another added benefit of doing this. You take all the people and all the gamesmanship out of it. And we say, we don't care. We're just going to – our debt is secured against that property. We are going to attach that property unless somebody, Joe, Mary, John, or whatever other relatives you have in the mix – pay us right otherwise you know we're going to uh, continue with the with the procedure so it's been very effective uh, in that regard which is another reason why we don't like using the court system uh, to sue people personally so one last question about liens um payment plans you recommend would you recommend still having a lien against the property if a homeowner is in a payment plan Absolutely. current on that payment plan yeah. Absolutely. so the thing is the 
you know, unless it was made by agreement, you can't just automatically record if you agreed to forbear from, you know, taking action. You can't record in the middle of a, a you know, a payment plan unless that was by agreement. So generally, having that lien recorded prior to entering into the payment plan it is the base, best case scenario because, you know, that homeowner, you know, may be paying now, but they may, you know, fall off later. Having that lien recorded just secures the amount. So, so it provides the association with a, you know, a, a backup, a barrier of, of security that if that homeowner defaults, even if they've made most of the payments, that you know, they still have that secured amount in the event that they, they default on that payment plan. Yeah. So, so again, going back to you know, file it and file it early. Whenever you're CCNR, say to file it, file it. Yeah, secure the debt. I mean, it's just one of those things because we've seen situations before. People might say, oh, I want to get in a payment plan, but it might, it might just be a delay tactic. But I'm not going to get in the payment plan until you, you know, release the uh, release the lien. And then we've seen against our counsel, clients say, okay, well, let's just do that so we can get them into the payment plan. Then the homeowner makes one payment, stops paying the payment plan, and then before you know it, all of a sudden the property changed hands. The homeowner sold the property, and they were able to do that because they hoodwinked the board into releasing the lien, never released the lien. A lot of times, too, clients that do, like, let's say the association's in a position where they have to do a big reconstruction project or something, and there's a massive special assessment. Well, we have to assess everybody eight grand. This isn't good, but we want to allow homeowners the ability to pay over time. Okay, that sounds great because, you know, we need, if they pay over time, we're still going to be able to make payments on the HOA's loan. We're going to be able to get the job done. That's great. Okay, but what if the homeowner doesn't, they say, oh, I'm going to pay over time, but they don't. Right? In those situations, we tell them, even though the homeowner's not delinquent, what you do is you record a lien right, in exchange for them paying over time in order to prevent them from saying, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll pay over time. And then all of a sudden, they're saying, i got to sell this yeah, unit it's as, gone. Yep. as quickly as I can. And now it's gone. And now that debt isn't the obligation of the new owner. Right, You have to chase the old owner for wherever they, they might be. So yeah, securing that debt is very important. Why should someone enter into a payment plan. What's the real benefit that they have? Well, it's a forbearance agreement. What does that mean? The association is going to forbear. It's going to uh, refrain from continuing its collection action. We're not going to continue to process our collection action, charge you collection fees. We're also going to put a pause on charging you late fees and interest in exchange for you paying the payment plan, right? That's the real benefit of it. Anything beyond that shouldn't be even in the mix. And for those of you that like using payment plans, we, we encourage them as well. It just be smart with them, right? A payment plan should not be used to provide a homeowner a free source of credit from the association. You know, payment plans shouldn't be longer than a year. I mean, two years tops, depending on the size of the debt, and make the homeowner submit a significant down payment in advance, right? Let's say the homeowner owes ten grand. All right, listen, we want five grand or three grand upfront, and you pay off the balance in a year. Show us that you're serious in paying this thing off, not. Okay, Steve, Corey, what we're going to do with this homeowner, they want a payment plan, they're going to pay it off over 10 years. So you're, you're making your association basically give a 10-year interest-free loan to, to this homeowner. That's not the thing that you're supposed to do. Um, so keep that in mind as well. If you're going to use payment plans, they're a great tool, but make sure they're short. Make sure that the homeowner demonstrates some good faith intent to pay down the payment plan by asking for a significant down payment in advance. Okay, so you just said something that I'd like you to expound on very quickly. Um, so... The lien wasn't, the debt wasn't secured. We didn't have a lien against the property. Um, property sells, it changes hands during the collection process. Buyer's not responsible for the assessment, the past due assessments. No. That comes up every once in a while. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So the assessment is the debt of the owner at the time the assessment is levied. Time the assessment is levied. So let's say you have a special assessment. It was levied, uh, where are we now? We're in September. It was levied this, this month for 5000 bucks against Joe, the homeowner. That is Joe's personal debt. 
Now, let's say there's no lien on the property. Joe sells a property to Tom, right? Tom was not on title at the time the special assessment was levied, which means it's not Tom's debt. That debt stays with Joe. And now because Joe's no longer in the property, we can't go after Joe's unit because it's not Tom's unit. So what do we have to do? We have to find Joe. We have to sue Joe, get a judgment against Joe. Um, and try to collect it that way. Okay. So it's just every every once in a while that does come up when, when people say, well, doesn't that debt transfer then? It follows the property. It doesn't follow the property. It follows the yeah, homeowner. Follows the the only way it follows the property is if we have the lien on the, on the property, right? Yeah. Well, the, the debt doesn't follow the property, but the lien attaches to the right. property. So in this situation, let's pack it again. We had Joe, the original owner, and he sold to Tom. Joe's obligated for the $5,000 special assessment. Somehow the property was sold while the lien was on it. Let's just, it wouldn't have happened. The lien would have gummed up the works. But let's say the lien is still on the property when Tom takes title to it. Tom is not obligated to pay that $5,000 special assessment that was levied when Joe was the owner. But Tom's property that he bought is secured by an assessment lien that we can then attach. So Tom, yeah, listen, Tom, you pay it or find Joe, have Joe pay it doesn't matter to us because we are proceeding against the property. You took title to a property that was encumbered by our secured interest that we have the right to enforce, and we're going to do that. So figure it out. Okay. The other thing that you said um, is that we don't like we don't like using the court system um, during assessment collections for a, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of those types of courts is small claims court. So, you know, we know that um, Davis Sterling says that we can collect assessments using small claims. There are um, a lot of association clients out there um, who prefer to use small claims. We don't recommend it. Um, Why not? So there are a variety of reasons. I I can kind of think of four big ones off the top of my head where we generally don't like to recommend small claims. Well, there is, you know, time and a place for them. Uh, By and large, we don't recommend them. And for the first one of that is that attorneys are not allowed to represent the association in that. So either a board member or management's actually going to have to go in and actually, you know, take on this, this endeavor to, you know, file the claim, get the judgment entered, and going through that whole process, even if you do associate with your attorney, all those fees and costs, you know, let's say we prepare the, the small claims wreath, that isn't something that can be then captured and reincorporated back into the debt. So that's a debt that's just eaten by the association. So cost... Although at the outset may look you know cheaper, it, it t- doesn't turn out really to be so. The second one is that there is a limitation of how much the association can seek in small claims. So uh, although for an individual person that's ten thousand dollars for an association, uh, you know for an association like homeowner associations, the limit is only five thousand. So the cap that an association can request is only five thousand dollars. More often than not, by the time it gets to the stage where they're considering a lawsuit, it's beyond that. So you wouldn't even be able to request the full amount of the debt in there. And you're also only allowed to do two small claims per year over $2,500. So there's another limitation that's placed on homeowner associations considering small claims. So so those are are some of the big ones um, that we're constantly seeing. Well, and, and you're also dealing with a judge pro tem, so you may not be getting somebody who's familiar with no. association law. Um, and if the association loses that lawsuit, to my understanding, you can't appeal it. And a lot of the other issues that, that we see with that is that it's more of the court is sitting in equity as opposed to actually following the law. Like you mentioned, they may not have any idea what's going on with association law. They see big nonprofit corporation, you know, with a lot of members paying dues. They see, you know, Tom, the homeowner, 
you know, whatever the case may be that he's explained why he didn't pay, they may just be, you know, you know, oh, I, I feel bad for this individual and write it off and enter a smaller amount. So the association right. is still not made whole. No, but the, the, the bigger picture why I don't like small claims. Small claims can be used in situations for small debt with a homeowner that's no longer in the community. And that might be the best thing that you, that you can do. And why is this? What are you seeking in small claims? You're seeking a money judgment. You're seeking an order, right, requiring the homeowner to pay money to you. When you get a judgment, whether it's through small claims or superior court, under the merger doctrine, that assessment lien that you had recorded previously is now extinguished. It doesn't exist anymore. It's merged into the judgment. You've executed your remedy. You now have a judgment. So you have nothing recorded against the property anymore, right, because that assessment lien is now gone. How do you resecure the debt that's owed? Well, you have to court a judgment lien, right? An abstract of judgment. So you've replaced an assessment lien, essentially through the small claims process, with you having to now record a judgment lien. But beyond that, once you get a judgment, what does that do for the association? It's not like you can take the money. And this is what I typically say. You can't take that judgment and go to the association's bank and say, please deposit this judgment into our account. It's, there's no value to it. That judgment is just its another way of saying the homeowner is obligated to pay money, and they were already obligated to pay that money. So you have this judgment, and what do you do now? Well, we have to enforce the judgment. How do we do that? We have to find out where the homeowner is employed, find out where they bank, try to tap their bank account. We're doing all of this collection work, right, when at the same time say, well, why do we even go down this route? We should have just started the non-judicial foreclosure process, kept our assessment lien on it, because and make the homeowner pay that way. So the only time we like, whether it's, you know, small claims or superior court where we want to get a money judgment against the homeowner is usually because the property is so upside down or because the homeowner no longer lives in the community anymore. So we can't go after their property, right? Kind of think of like the Joe and Tom situation. If there's no lien recorded, we have to go um, against the person. So that's the only time we really like getting money judgments um, and enforcing them that way. We think it's just a, a candidly, it's just a, not a good time, uh, not, not a good use of time or money. Well, and the judgment is only as good as the day that the judgment is recorded, right? So any past due assessments, so we get the judgment against the homeowner, homeowner's still in the unit, homeowner is still not paying. Now we have post-judgment assessments. Now we have to start a whole new collection oh, file. Exactly. It's a whole other file, and we're basically starting from square one. So The bad actor is still there. They're still not paying assessments, right. and, and that's the ultimate goal get paid and or remove them from the, the property. Okay, money judgments are bad. Whether it's small claims or superior court, money judgments are just, it's bad because it's just more money after yeah, bad it's money. Just, it's not that they're bad, it's just that they're just less effective. They well, should it's just be used, more money after bad. It's exact, I mean, they're a last resort thing when we can't proceed against the property anymore. The homeowner no longer living there, right, with the bank foreclosed, right, and we have this debt. That's when we get a money judgment. But in all other circumstances, we proceed to foreclose non-judicially and for people that are gun shy and doing this, I know it sounds scary. All the term of foreclosure, let's just get a you know a small claim suit against this homeowner. Banks and HOAs are the only types of entities in California that have this non-judicial foreclosure power. It's incredibly effective. So the fact that we wouldn't wield it um, is you know a lot of times it's due to kind of a lack of education on the client's behalf or just kind of this this scared, this frightened feeling that they have saying, well, foreclosure, that sounds intense. Let's just sue them in small claims and get a judgment. Well, if the goal here is really to get money in the door for the association as quickly as we can and not to balloon this file with needless fees and having us having to try to find out where they bank or where they work or try to do wage garnishments and get wait to, uh, you know, wait to be paid over time, let's use the non-judicial foreclosure approach because like we said a few minutes ago, just starting that process, just starting the non-judicial foreclosure process serving the homeowner with the decision to initiate foreclosure, recording the NOD, 
that's what gets the homeowner to the table and make them to make them pay. We don't have to chase them anymore. Like what you hear so far? Make sure to subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast at TinleyLaw.com and never miss an episode. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now let's get back to the show. Well, let's let's unpack non-judicial foreclosure a little bit because, as you said, most associations that don't want to do um, non-judicial foreclosure, um, it's more of an intimidation factor, and there's typically two reasons. Um, one, they don't want to foreclose on their neighbor, right? It's that whole aspect of community and community living. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is that they don't want to own property. So um, just taking those one at a time, you know, let's talk about the community aspect of it, you know, and, and boards being fiduciaries. Yeah, I mean, they're they're corporate directors, all right? So you can't, I mean, could you imagine if a for-profit corporation was owed a bunch of money by one of its, you know, one of its vendor partners or, you know, under some other contract and the, that board just told its shareholders, hey, we feel bad for the owner of this subsidiary here. They owe us a bunch of money, but they've fallen on hard times, right? There would be a shareholder suit against the board, right? The board is there to maintain... Uh, and to promote the assets of the corporation, not to you know make sure that they're they're doing that. And it's a tough thing in a community association. You feel bad for your neighbors, but think about it on the flip side. You're making all your other neighbors subsidize this individual, right? They're all having to pay more because this individual is not paying at all, or your services get reduced. That's really not your job as a as a zero based budget nonprofit corporation. You got to make sure that everybody um, is paying. Yeah, you, you absolutely have to have to do that. So sitting there and saying, oh, we don't want to foreclose or we, or we don't want to do these things because we feel bad for it, you're really not recognizing what your what your role is. Just in, in practicality, though, associations that do that, we see them making those decisions where they feel bad or they give these people these 10-year payment plans or they write off all these things. What are you doing? You're basically broadcasting to your membership that the assessment obligation, your your, your requirement to pay dues is not that serious. Right. <laughs> you know, because the board is not going to... So what do you, you're just you're just creating more problems. It's like you have chapped lips and you're just deciding to lick them over and over and over again, and you wonder why the the condition keeps getting worse. It's because you're not you're not addressing the root cause of the problem. The best communities, the ones that have the least amount of delinquencies, in our experience, are those that follow their collection process vigorously to let the homeowner know right away this is very serious. We're not going to bend. We're not waiving late charges and interest. This is what the situation is, and you absolutely need to pay it. Sometimes too, and the, the well, we don't want to own, we don't want the foreclosure sounds scary. Keep in mind, once we start the foreclosure process at any point, all the way up until the day before the sale gets opened, let's say we're in those extreme hypotheticals, extreme rare situation, we can postpone. Yep, we can cancel, right. and we've had some clients do that. Hey, let's march as quickly as we can to when we can actually sell the property. If the homeowner still doesn't pay, well, at that point, we'll cancel it, and we'll get a money judgment against them because we don't actually want to foreclose on the home. We can do that. That's totally fine. We have had some clients do that. We've had, and that's been successful. But the point is to keep the home, from the homeowner's perspective, the association is moving as quickly as they possibly can. I better take care of this. One community in particular came to us. They had, gosh, it was... I think it was 80% of their community not paying assessments. It's absolutely terrible. It was a horrible situation. And they were worried about these things. And we actually got to a point when we were able to schedule a sale date to record the notice of sale. The board said, we don't want to go through with the foreclosure. I said, well, at least let's take this step because it's going to have so much value. Because when we record the notice of sale legally, we're required to post notice of the sale on the homeowner's property. We wanted to do that because we wanted everybody in the community to see this notice so that the words are, oh my gosh, the HOA can take your house? 
or do you hear that the HOA is foreclosing on it? To have a deterrent effect, let everybody know, hey, just so you see what's happening to Joe's, Joe's unit down the street, that, that's real. That can happen. That can, okay, all right, what do I need to do to take care of this assessment debt? I don't want to be delinquent um, and have to deal with that situation. So there's, there's a variety of, of benefits to it, even if you don't ultimately sell the property. Well, and, and for associations that, that don't want to become property owners, and we've already um, discussed the it's – a, it's a minute number where we actually get all the way yeah, to sale and we sell, and, and we actually take title to the property. Um, in those cases, again, we're getting title to the property instead of cash. We're not getting the delinquent assessment monies to deposit into the bank. Mm-hmm. So now what? Do we have to the association? Does the association have to pay the mortgage? No, we don't have to pay the mortgage. We don't have to pay the mortgage. We have to pay the taxes that are on the property. We have to secure the property. We have to insure it. But there's also options. We have some communities that foreclose on properties and actually rent them out. Um, a lot of times, why foreclosing on a property and actually taking title, even if you don't want to own it, even if you don't want to rent it out or do anything along those lines, the reason why that's beneficial is because if the homeowner is not paying the association's assessment, it actually gets and they're willing to walk away from the property, let the HOA take it. They're not paying their senior mortgage either, right? They're not paying their mortgage. And that mortgage lender, even though they've been in a position to foreclose, we have some clients, the banks said they're foreclosing, and that was two years ago, and they keep saying that they're foreclosing, but they never foreclose. They're usually hesitant to foreclose, right, because, oh my gosh, there might be something wrong with the mortgage, or they might be worried about getting some type of claim against the homeowner, which is making them gun-shy to actually pull the trigger. So by the association taking title and getting their borrower out of the unit, that, that removes the anxiety and whatever inhibition the owner had or the uh, lender had to foreclose on the property. So what does that mean? It results in a transfer of ownership to the property. The lender finally forecloses and you get a new assessment paying owner in the property. And a lot of times that's the win, right? This homeowner has no assets. They're not paying us. They're never going to pay us. How can we get somebody new in the property as quick as we can who's going to start paying us? Well, the bank is in a position to foreclose, but they're not. Why don't we foreclose, take title, and then tell the bank, by the way, we foreclose on our junior uh, assessment lien. We have no intention of paying off your mortgage, just so you're aware. And we've seen that actually spot. Oh, okay, now the lender is actually going to get it. Then, the, then it goes very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> it goes very quickly. So we're, we're stopping the bleeding. Exactly. exactly. And, and, you know... Again, going back to that community spirit, um, that homeowner still has a 90-day right of redemption. So if they didn't take us seriously and we get all the way to the point where we've taken title, they can still get it back. Yeah, they have 90. So even after we foreclose, let's say we foreclose, we actually conduct a sale, we sell the property, right? Or it reverts to the association. By law, the homeowner who was foreclosed on still has three months, 90 days after the sale date to redeem their property, basically to reinstate their ownership of the property by paying everything that the association is owed, including everything that they spent on the sale. So that's, and we've had, we've had debtors redeem where we've actually foreclosed and they say, okay, fine. And then they finally get an attorney and attorney says, oh my gosh, you let this out. We got an idea. This is nuts. And then they redeem the property and they do it. They do it that way. So it's, again, it's not as though once the, and this is sometimes where we, you know, really want to educate the boards. We were requesting the board's authorization to initiate foreclosure, and they think in their mind, oh, next week we're going to be selling a property. No, it's it's probably going to be six months before we can even get to a sale date. And even after we sell the property, there's still another three months that the homeowner is going to have to redeem the property if they want to. So it's it's not overnight all of a sudden we have a property and we got to figure out what we need to do with it. Yeah, right. and, and again, it goes back to you know the homeowner taking the association seriously. I mean, the homeowner never thought. The homeowner never thought in a million years that the association was actually going to sell their home and oops 
Yeah. You know, right? right? And right. that's and that's how we get those redeemed properties back. Yeah, yeah. and, and the, just to go towards, you know, that sense of community that you've mentioned a couple of times of, you know, why boards might be hesitant or not. You know, taking these steps is actually, you know, more towards that sense of community because it's ensuring that all the obligations are met, the services that the association, that everyone bought into because, you know, they, they liked that or they wanted this, can continue. So if these actions aren't taken, you know, that kind of damages the, the community feeling more than going through this process, yeah, and, and then it creates that deterrent effect. So it serves everyone, you know, in the best interest. Okay, so... From pre-lean all the way to right of redemption, how long does this entire process take? You have an association that has a homeowner who's delinquent, who's been delinquent for a significant period of time. We're finally getting involved. How long does this whole process take? When can they expect to see some money? So this is a question that we get all the time. And, you know, as many legal questions, the answer is it depends. So it, it depends on a lot of things, whether or not the initial communication will trigger them to you know, reach out and start working with us, either payment plan, lump sum, whatever the case may be. You know, that would be much quicker to, you know, from the time it's sent to our office to having that check in hand in the association's coffers. On the other hand, if you get the one where you know, they're being non-responsive or they're trying to you know, throw wrenches in with different requests, request for payoff and then don't actually make the payoff, you know, that could be a lot longer. So we don't like to give, you know, any single answer of this is the amount of time we expect to pay because, you know, we can't predict the human nature and how, how they're going to respond. So, um, you know, we can always provide this, you know, kind of time frame of the statutory notice requirements and how long that would take, but then you got to, you know, account for the person and how they're going to respond. Right. Yeah. right. So from the beginning to the end, I mean, let's just say from pre-lean all the way through that you conduct the sale and you do the right of redemption. Realistically, you're at probably 18 months, right? If you're, and that's if you're moving at a pretty good clip. When you say that, and that sounds scary. Keep in mind that's the whole process. Yes. It's very rare that we have to do the whole process. Usually, the file gets transferred to Altera. Let's say there's a lien already on it. We send out our initial demand letter with a debt validation notice. A lot of times, that initial communication gets the job done. And in the event that it doesn't, when the, we request then the board, hey board, let's start foreclosure, then serve the homeowner. Like I said, 90% of the files that hadn't been resolved at that point get resolved. So what does that mean? In reality, most files are usually around a 45 to 90 day timeline before when they're transferred to quote unquote collections. And when the homeowner either pays it off in full or gets into a payment plan that the board approves. So it's, it's you know, about a three month window, um, I'd say is probably an, an average amount of time right, right within there where most files get resolved. But to that point, Steve, um, part of the reason why we're resolving files within 90 days is because we're pretty aggressive in, in that if we say you need to pay within 30 days, the next notice is going out on day 32 or day 33, exactly. right? When files have to, when files get delayed, when we, when we present something to a board and it takes a board three months to respond because they're only meeting quarterly, that 90 days could become six yeah. months, right? Yeah, and if it depends with the, yeah, if the board says with the him and ha, they, they table these things because nobody really likes to talk about collections, it's unsavory, I get it. Um, but for the board members that are then managers, when you're, if you have board members that are kind of gun shy with this, the reason why, the vast majority of the situation, the reason why the homeowner is not paying assessments is not because they can't. It's that they, they won't because they don't think it's serious, right? So, oh, I can't pay assessments, uh, but I've got the brand new iPhone, I've got a new beam release, whatever. they're just choosing not to pay you. They're, they're prioritizing things, right? And the reason why they're choosing not to pay you is because they don't take you seriously. It really helps us in terms of our effectiveness with, hey, here's our initial letter. If you don't pay within 30 days, we're going to do this. 
if that 30 day period ends and then we don't get the board's authorization for several more months to do the, the next step, well, all we're doing then is kind of telling the homeowner, see, you're right. We, you don't have to take this seriously. We threatened to do something in 30 days and now it's six months later and you're getting another letter from us. So if we say doing this in 30 days and the board gives us the authorization, so on day 32 or day 33, they're getting the new thing or they're getting served with it. The homeowner says, oh my gosh, okay, this thing is actually moving here. I got to do something about this. What do I need to pay? How do I, how do I get this thing off? So it's march down the process as quickly as you possibly can. Just psychologically, it's very, very effective. And it's less expensive for the homeowner when we do that, right? Yeah, I mean, in all of our letters, we tell because every and and for those of you that don't know this, everything that an association pays, either it's management company or it's collection service repro- uh, provider, anything that it incurs, right? Any collection fees or costs that it incurs gets added onto the homeowner's debt. So the homeowner owes three grand, and we have to spend a thousand bucks chasing the homeowner. Now the homeowner owes four grand, right? So in each of the letters, we tell the homeowner, it's in your interest to pay this off as soon as possible because if we have to keep doing stuff, your debt's only going to increase, right? So by keeping the process as aggressive as possible and making sure that the homeowner understands how serious it is so that they pay sooner rather than later, that's going to keep the file from getting ballooned with additional fees because we're having to work this thing on kind of a piecemeal, drip-by-drip basis. And then all of a sudden, the homeowner says, oh, gosh, this debt got big pretty quickly let me see if i could file bankruptcy or do something like that to make it go away all right so so last question this is the big question that i get all the time how much does it cost how much does it cost on average to collect so this like your mona i get this question all the time and uh you know it it, it is that same as uh, with the time frame it depends you know, like I mentioned, we can't always predict the human nature. So it may be the fact that we get a file and the pre-lien, you know, incentivizes the, the homeowner to reach out and pay it. So at that point, you know, that's it's very, very small amount of, of, of legal fees and costs that we've expended. So it doesn't cost a lot. Other times, you know, the amount of notices we get all the way to sale, you know, as we take those additional steps, additional fees and costs are accrued. Like Steve said, those are wrapped back into the debt and are, are part of the debt that we seek to collect. So although it's a cost up front to the association, we capture it on the back end, we, we can't really predict what these costs are going to be at the outset because we don't know exactly when you know, they're going to reach out. It no. can be you know, less than $1,000 if they respond quickly to you know, several thousand dollars if we go all the way to sale. Um, but the key thing, as the, kind of the theme of the day has been, you know, take these steps, be aggressive with your collection, and that will in turn, you know, be known amongst the community and incentivize homeowners to pay quicker so to reduce not only the amount of time but the cost. So, you know, keeping your foot on the gas pedal on this is the best way to keep the cost down and also make sure the association's been made whole. Right. Yeah, because if we can get a homeowner to respond after the lien or even go into a payment plan, you know, early on in the process, we're talking, you know, under a thousand, couple thousand dollars. But homeowner decides to contest it and gets an attorney and, you know, and, and then it just balloons yeah. and it could be... Well, a lot of times when the homeowner gets an attorney, because the, the homeowner doesn't understand what's going on, the attorney advises them. And we actually like when attorneys get involved in the mix because they realize, no, you need to pay this off. And anything I talk to the other side about that making them incur attorney's fees, that gets added on to your debt, client. So if you... I, they're paying I, twice. They're, they're paying, paying their attorney they're paying, and us. Paying their attorney and they're paying us. I think a kind of a, if you think about it, how much does it cost to collect? Well, it really doesn't cost anything to collect because everything that the association has to pay ultimately gets recovered when the file is resolved. So the association is reimbursed. The question really is, how much are we going to have to pay in collection fees before we get those fees back, right? And in our assessments, back. And that answer is, it depends, right? It depends on how 
you know, how much we have to work to file if we're able to proceed as aggressively as we want, then it, then it makes it small. But sometimes I'll have people that aren't in the industry or I say, oh, yeah, we're celebrating today. Um, we, we recovered, you know, a quarter million bucks in debt for our clients this month, like we did this, this past month. Oh, okay, great. Well, how much of that is like fees that you guys – like, well, no, we don't get a percentage or a portion of it. We just perform task-based things. So we had a $50,000 file that we resolved for less than 1000 bucks in collection fees because it was a big – it was an institutional right owner. They had an attorney. We said, oh, okay, we'll, we'll take care of this. not a problem. But then we've had situations where a homeowner might owe $6,000, and it, there was about $6,000 in collection fees because we had to deal with this individual over the course of a year and a half, right? So the, the debt was ultimately recovered, but that homeowner had to pay twelve, right? So in the end, it cost the association – Zero, but they had to pay out, right? Because they had to pay out that six grand over the course of a year and a half in order to get that six grand back. So it really just depends on the nature of the file, not the amount uh, itself. And we are always happy to, you know, attend board meetings, to call in, whatever the case may be, to, you know, walk the board through these steps to kind of, you know, provide outlook, guidance, and all that. We want the board to be you know, as collaborative a process as, as they want to make sure they're making the best choices for mm -hmm. the association. And we can, you know, always explain this further during those meetings, but, you know, it, it's just important that we are taking these yeah. steps. Yeah. So collection fees and costs, if you're asking the real question, what a client says, okay, how much are we going to have to pay in collection fees and costs before we can get that money back, before the file is resolved? On average, the files float between 1000 to 2000 bucks in fees, right? And those are the, again, those are the files that are resolved within the you know, 90 to 120 day window. But if we're working a file over the course of a year and a half and actually going through foreclosure, it can get up to five, six, even, you know, a little bit north of that if we ultimately have to. But it's usually around, I'd say two grand is a pretty, pretty healthy number to keep in mind. A lot of files are resolved for less than that though. So, so bottom line, you know, every file is unique. Um, and, you know, we're not, when we're going back to a, a, a client and we're saying, you know, we have to do corrective work, or we have to file additional liens, or um, you know we're we're asking for the next step to be taken. It's not because we're trying to gin up fees because the homeowner ultimately is going to have to be the one who's going to pay for all of these things. Mm -hmm. It's because every file is unique, and because of the Diamond case, and because of you know the, the Highland Greens case, and because of. All of the numerous cases out there in federal law and state law, there are certain steps that we have to follow. This is a very, um, it requires strict compliance, and it's a very litigious field. So, you know, we're asking that we have to do these things because we actually well, have to do these have things. To do it. Yeah, it's full of landmines. Keep everybody out of court. That's the important thing, get dollars in the door. Um, really proud of the team just this year. If those of you listening were in, what, the tail end of September uh, of 2022, and the Altera team, I think, is already at uh, over $2.5 million in debt recovery just for this year, right? So it's it's an effective process that we can utilize, right, that we can do that, and we like being able to recover that. And one of the reasons why we're able to resolve that is because we don't look for opportunities to balloon the file with needless debt. Because if we the homeowner owes $4,000 in collection fees, and because we're doing things a certain way where it makes that 4000 turn into $8,000 overnight, which is a lot of times what happens when people sue homeowners and you have to use attorney to do that. If the homeowner really is in a tough position to pay and they couldn't pay the four and now you've added four onto it, right? Are you going to be able to resolve that file? Are you going to actually be, no, you just made it harder. So it's actually in, in our best interest when our goal is really to recover the debt and resolve the file as quickly as we can. 
how can we do that? Well, let's make sure that we're not, you know, putting more fees on this homeowner than we ultimately need to. And at every step in the process, we're telling the homeowner, pay this offer. There's going to be more fees in a month. Pay this offer. It's going to be more, uh, more fees in a month. So that's, that's our approach, right? If you're, if you're serious about resolving the debt, then we have to avoid ballooning the file with fees because that's just going to encourage homeowners to try to gum up the works or try to file bankruptcy. Um, and it's not going to make anybody really any, any better off. No, and, and everything that we're saying needs to be done and all the extra steps that we're taking needs to be done. And we're doing that ultimately to protect the association, right? You know, it's needless, there's needless lawsuits and needless liability that they don't need to become involved with if we just follow what the code says. Exactly. Well, thank you so much um, for sitting down with me today and answering those questions. Um, I, I feel like... You know, it doesn't matter how much education you do on assessment collection because it's always changing. You always need more. Um, so thank you both um, for sitting down and speaking with us today. We'd like to thank um, Corey Todd for his time and expertise. Please make sure you visit our website at tinleylaw.com if you haven't already, where we break down this episode and stay tuned for our next one. To share or subscribe to the Tinley Talks podcast, visit us at tinleylaw.com. There you can find links to everything discussed in this episode, locate helpful resources, check out other episodes, and submit questions for future topics. And be sure to tune in next month for our next episode. As always, the views and opinions expressed by the podcast, its presenters and guests do not constitute legal advice. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast, please consult with your association's legal counsel. This is Tinnelly Talks presented by Tinnelly Law Group. Your community, your council.